Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and welcome to Truth Nuggets number 14. And we're going to be focusing in on the Jewish feast of Purim. Sometimes it's pronounced among American Christians as Purim or Purim, but the actual pronunciation in Hebrew is Purim. And anyway, this is going to be the first of two lessons. The second will be a video, and that'll be coming soon. But both of these lessons, this audio podcast and then the vidcast, the video coming soon, both show the awesomeness of this book. The awesomeness of the message that God has put into this book for us. We go into the fact that indeed God said in the book of Isaiah, and this is in Isaiah 14, verse 24, that Adonai Tsevaot, the Lord, Master of Legions, has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have conceived, so it shall come about. And as I have devised, so it shall be established. And indeed, as we take a look at this Feast of Purim, and we go into the book of Esther, we really realize that indeed, God's redemption plan from the beginning to the end can never be stopped. He's conceived it, and it will happen. So, this Jewish feast is not commanded by the Lord. It is not one of God's feasts. You can go to Leviticus 23 and start reading there immediately. And God said, these are my feasts. Actually, in the Hebrew, it means appointed times. Appointed times where God and his people are to meet. And there's only eight of them, starting with the Sabbath, Shabbat, and then Passover, etc. Now, for many believers in Judaism and Christianity, this story, this book of Esther, has become a Cinderella story. And I remember I attended a Messianic church, a Messianic Christian assembly for a number of years. And as Christians, uh, practicing and doing the Jewish feasts and so on, they celebrated Purim. And it was a fun event. It was filled with joy and fellowship and good food. It's really a great evening. But the story was treated like Esther was Cinderella. And th this wonderful, young, saintly, godly girl. And it bothered me because what I was reading in the Bible wasn't the same that was being portrayed. And don't get me wrong, the practice was wonderful. It was a great godly event. But something was off. Something wasn't connecting with regards to the very words of God in the Bible and the way things were being portrayed uh, at these events at this Messianic congregation. Now, for many, Esther is this pure, devout orphan. She was like a captive in a pagan land. Well, she wasn't a captive, 
but and surrounded by Jew haters. And that she was forced or kidnapped into the king's harem. And the king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he falls in love with this pure and righteous and saintly beauty. Now the second in command of the entire Persian empire is Haman. And Haman plots to annihilate all the Jewish people. It's genocide, just like Hitler. And by lots, by, you might say, the luck of the draw, Purim, that's what Purim means, lots, the roll of the dice, the date of the 13th day of the 12th month is chosen when all Jews throughout the world, I mean, this is global genocide, would be assassinated. The Feast of Purim starts at sundown on February 25th and goes through February 26th until sundown here in this year 2021. And we recall Esther's stepdad, her cousin Mordecai, because in the word here in the book of Esther, it says he adopted her as a daughter. But we go into a famous saying, probably one of the most famous scripture verses, but Mordecai is, Mordecai is talking to Esther, and he says, do not imagine, this is in uh, Esther 4, verse 14. Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So what's fascinating here is the implication by Mordecai. Even though he does not use God's name or he does not bring God into the picture, the implication here is perhaps this is all God's design. No coincidence. No chance. This is designed and planned by God. Then later on, there's a banquet that Esther prepared and she set it up so that she would be able to expose Haman's plot and she reports that to Ahasuerus, the king, Xerxes. He's caught and he's later hanged. So in the typical Christian messianic portrayal of the entire story, they talk about the fact that Haman is hung by a rope on the gallows. And that was one of the first things that jumped out at me because I knew about ancient culture. I've always been a fan of history. And I know Haman was not hung by the neck with a rope on the gallows. I know that in ancient Persia, ancient Babylon, ancient Assyria, execution was done by a paling, sticking somebody on a stake and hoisting that stake up. And when you actually, when I actually learned the Hebrew later on, this is exactly what it says in the book of Esther in Hebrew. Anyway, for Christians again, the story continues. King Xerxes then allows Esther to punish all the Jews, all the Jewish enemies across across the world, and there's 75,000 killed. And it happens on the day that Haman had planned to annihilate all the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month which is approximately a month before Passover so the book of Esther she is like the Cinderella of the Bible and the 
story ends where Mordecai initiates the celebration of the feast Purim and indeed it's signed into law by Esther the queen and you get this impression that they they lived happily ever after that's the basic story the problem is when we get into rabbinic Judaism and we start studying the Talmud and the Talmud is the Jewish commentary on the Hebrew scriptures on the Old Testament and we can read the rabbis own words that they had major problems with this book like for instance it's totally secular there's no God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther Lord is not even mentioned there there's no Sabbath there's no Torah there's no Jewish rituals scholars seem to say this is probably one reason why major parts of the book of Esther were not found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a reference to it in another scroll, but it's not like the other books of the Bible. And it could very well be that in Jesus' day and before, that the book of Esther was not really accepted as a book of the Bible. And matter of fact, that was true. It nearly didn't make the final cut when the Jewish scholars get together, rabbis get together and say, okay, what is going to be the final cut of all the books of the Hebrew scriptures? The rabbis have turned the Esther story into a Cinderella story. They had to make it religious. But the historical reality of the very words of God, the historical reality of the very words of the Bible, they were too troublesome. It's like Hanukkah. In the Talmud, you will find that a Jewish rabbi about the third century AD made up a story about the miracle of the oil that happened at Hanukkah. The reason being is we have rabbinic teaching in their own words, not my opinion, that the revolt of the Maccabees ending in the Feast of Hanukkah was violent and gruesome and they had to make it into more of a godly time more of a time that didn't emphasize the violence didn't emphasize the gruesomeness of those days they hid the reality now I contend that we should not take away from the stark reality that is presented in the book of Esther or in the Bible throughout. We shouldn't turn the book of Esther into a children's story. We need to face the truth of these events in their historical context. We, we shouldn't hide the difficulties. I, and I contend that if we reconnect to the historical context of the book of Esther, and face the realities, the stark truth of what is presented in this book. The message is Esther, that God is bringing in this book is more profound and awesome than we ever imagined. But the problem is that most of us have been blinded by these traditional stories in rabbinical Judaism, made up by men, not taught in the truth of the very words of God. Listen to Adonai Yeshua. In John 8, 31 through 32, he's talking to Jews that believed him. 
And he said, you should abide or continue in my word, and you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the Greek word going to the Hebrew there basically is a picture of standing upon God's word, leaning on it, enduring life and persevering in life with the worldview of God's word. This is action. It's not a mental conviction. It's not mental belief. This is taking the word of God and putting it into action in my life, in every aspect of my life. Our life and everything about our life depends upon his word. Then we would know the truth. But we have fallen for rabbinic traditions. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of these rabbis, probably most of them, are godly men. They're well-intentioned. But in Judaism, the teaching of the rabbis, the Midrashim, in the Talmud is accepted as equal to God's word. So for us, again, we have fallen for these things. And on top of that, we Christians have fallen for the Hollywood images. You remember the movie a number of years ago, One Night with the King. You get the impression, One Night with the King, and Esther was being trained to play chess with the king, or checkers, or uh, read him stories. And with all of this, the impact of the message of the book of Esther has been lost. We have no grasp anymore of the awesomeness of Esther and the story. So what is it we're not accepting? So what we're going to do is we're going to take the book of Esther and put it back into its historical context. So let's study the very words of God as is. What does the Bible say in its historical context? not just opinions of certain men who have trouble with certain stark concepts in the book of Esther. Let's bring our brain to the Bible. Let's bring our brain to the Bible and face the truth. So first, the Jews in Persia had been freed by Cyrus the Great, the first great Persian ruler, the first great Persian king in 538 BC. There's archaeological proof of this. In 1879 in Babylon, a thing called the Cyrus Cylinder was found, and these were the words of Cyrus the Great himself, and he freed the Jews. Matter of fact, he freed all captives of Babylon. It's in his own words. The exile was over. He allowed them to return. If they wanted to go back to Jerusalem and they wanted to rebuild the temple, Cyrus says, no problem whatsoever, go. And we know about Zerubbabel, we know about Nehemiah, we know about Ezra's return, the building of the temple. Matter of fact, with all of this, we go to the book of Isaiah and we read the very words of God. This is Isaiah 45, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Listen to what God says about Cyrus. Now, it's fascinating in here because in Isaiah 45, in verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord. The word Lord is all capitalized, L-O-R-D, which means in the original Hebrew, it's God's name, the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus his anointed, to Cyrus his anointed. In other words, God is saying, Cyrus is my anointed one, whom I've taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him 
so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, my and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. This is amazing. Right there in the first phrases of verse 1, Cyrus is called God's anointed. In Hebrew, Mashiach, or Messiah, or in Greek, Christos. This is the Christ of Yahweh. Now, just as the Messiah is coming, just as the Christ is coming, and he will free Jew and Gentile from the bondage of sin and free all Israel so that they will dwell in the land forever when he comes again. It's almost as if God is saying Cyrus is a picture, a small picture of what the Messiah will be like. But the question is, if there are Jews in Persia and they're free, why didn't they return? Most of them stayed in Persia, like in the city of Susa, where Xerxes' palace was, and this is where the story of Esther occurs. <laughs> You'd say, yeah, most of the Jews stayed. Why go back? Jerusalem's in ruins and they're trying to rebuild the city. Maybe they're getting reports back from Zerubbabel. Maybe getting reports back from Nehemiah that the people who live there, while the Jews were taken into exile, now are attacking the Jews as they're building the wall. Why go back? Susa. Oh my goodness, what a rich, beautiful, and safe city. What a strong empire. Why go back to Israel? When you're reading in the book of Ezra, you find out that 42,000 went back with Zerubbabel, approximately. And then there was more that went back with Nehemiah and Ezra, but it was just a remnant that returned. When we take a look at a amazing scholarly book called The Kingdom of Priests by Dr. Eugene Merrill, and I, I it's one of those books I have in my li library because this is an amazing history of the Old Testament. And Dr. Merrill. He talks about the book of Esther. Quoting from his book, he said the presence of the Jews in Persia, in Susa, their presence suggests both the wide distribution of the Jewish diaspora, a century after the fall of Jerusalem, and it was a century, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., and here we're in about 480 B.C. That is approximately the time of the events in the book of Esther. So it's 100 years. So we're taking a look at the Jewish diaspora a century after the fall of Jerusalem, and the fact already emphasized that it is likely that the majority of the exiled Jews remained in the lands of their captivity 
even when they had the opportunity to leave. They assimilated into the new world. It's also clear. And it's clear from the very names of the two principal characters in the story, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is a, is a Hebrew transliteration of the Babylonian divine name Marduk. Why does a pious Jew bear the name of a pagan god? This is not easy to answer. His cousin's name, Esther, is similarly pagan in its overtones. Esther seems to be of the form of the Babylonian goddess of love and war, Ishtar. Now, she also had a Hebrew name, Hadassah, meaning Myrtle, from which she was probably known that in the Jewish kingdom, or in the Jewish community there in Susa. But the interesting thing is, is that we have, in terms of putting the Bible in its historical context, we're giving evidence of, one, the Jews did not leave Persia, many of them, only a remnant. And number two, we take a look at the names of Mordecai and Esther, and they're pretty clear indicators that it seems as the Jewish population there had assimilated into the Persian culture. And it's probably a couple of generations. They first came there in 586 BC, and now it's 100 years later. So it could very well be that Mordecai and Esther were really products of the previous generation in Persia. In other words, Mordecai and Esther did not purposely assimilate into the Persian culture and turn away from God. It was basically taught to them by the ones that were in Persia, the Jewish exiles that came before them. Now, there's no mention of God in the book of Esther. No indication of Jewish practices whatsoever. Mordecai and Esther have pagan name, names of pagan gods. In the Torah, you can find this in the first five books of the Bible where God says, you will not even take the name of pagan gods on your lips. So either Mordecai and Esther did it on purpose or it was given to them. So it's very likely they assimilated into the pagan culture. Or perhaps they didn't even know differently because obviously of the Jews that came before them. But it's very interesting. This is just like Egypt. After Joseph, the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And on top of that, it happened again in Germany. The Jews assimilated into the Western culture of Germany. They changed their names from really Jewish names to maybe more German names. They turned away from their Jewish heritage. It happened in Egypt, it happened in Germany, and it seems to be happening here in Persia. So that's the first thing. Cyrus set them free. They were not in exile anymore. And most of the Jews in Persia never returned. Second of all, when you're reading the events in the book of Esther, Esther was not kidnapped or seized to be taken into the harem of the king. Xerxes, he had the word of his edict, and in Esther, chapter 2, verse 3, it talks about 
gathering the beautiful virgins. The Hebrew word there is kavatz, and the Strong's number is 6908, H6908. And it, it basically means simply to gather together, to assemble. So they gather together the beautiful virgins across the Persian Empire, and they're probably young teenage girls. Probably. Not like One Night with, with a King, where Esther is shown to be about 25, maybe even 28. Esther is probably a young girl, 14, 15 years old. In Esther chapter 2, verse 8, it talks about Esther being taken into the harem. The Hebrew word there is lachach, and that's the Strong's number, H is 3947. It means to take. Matter of fact, lachach is used when it says in a wedding where the bridegroom has taken a wife. This is not kidnapping. This is not forced seizure. Taken. So she's taken to the royal harem, but in ancient in the ancient Persian language, the word from harem basically means night station, place where you spend one night. We'll call it the royal harem, but it's called basically night night station. Now, there is an excellent article in the Encyclopedia Iranica out of Iran, and I have given you that link at the website www.lightamenorah.org and menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H and it's all one word, lightamenorah.org and if you go there you and you find this lesson, you'll find a picture for this lesson, Truth Nuggets 14 um, not by chance but by design and you'll see uh, my description of the session and in there I will have the link to this article the Harem in Ancient Iran from the Encyclopedia Iranica, and you'll be able to read it. And, and the, the Harem? Oh my goodness, the girls there? They had such a rich life, a, luxur a luxurious life. They had such a great living. They were trained in music. They were trained in singing. They had a great living, awesome food, beautiful clothes beauty treatments so indeed here we have Esther being taken into this life into the harem now there were three groups of girls women in the harem each of these groups and again you can find this in the article the harem in ancient Iran each of these groups had a supervisor and that is a eunuch of the king's court and so the first house was the the house of the virgins here they were trained as musicians dancers singers they got fantastic beauty treatments they were trained in the etiquette of the royal court in the book of esther we find out that the eunuch in charge of this first house is called and i hope i can pronounce his name correctly it, it's it's like Hege. And so this is the first house. This is the house that Esther is brought into. 
Now, the second house is the house of the concubines. And concubines in the ancient Near East were like half-wives. Um, they have children by the king. In other words, the king has sex with the concubines. Uh, but the kids are basically second-class kids. They're not on the same status as with the king's choice of who his queen will be because his choice of who his queen will be means the son of the queen that of his choice will be his heir and take over the throne once the father is dead. Normally, queens come out of this second house. They come out of the concubines where the king will pick one of those girls, one of the concubines that came out of the first house, the house of the virgins. The last house is called the house of the ladies or the ladies of the household. These were his legal wives. So Xerxes could have had many wives. We read about Queen Vashti. We read about Queen Esther. We get the impression, though, from history that Queen Vashti and Esther happened to be put in the position of the number one queen. In other words, if there were any children between Xerxes and Esther, Esther's son would be the heir to take over Xerxes' throne once Xerxes uh, retired or died. But again, the king in ancient Persia could have multiple wives. Now, let's go to the book of Esther, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Matter of fact, I'm going to read verse 8. So it came about when the command and, and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Hegei, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Hegei, who was in charge of the women. So indeed, what happens is, as a young virgin, she is brought into the first group of women, the first group of girls. So continuing on in verse 12, the writer of the book of Esther is talking about what happens in general in the harem. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. Now this is interesting because the book of Eric. Uh, Esther verifies the actual historical accuracy of what the harem was like in ancient Persia. So after a virgin who was picked by the king to spend one night with the king, she would return but not return back to the house of the virgins. First of all, she's not a virgin anymore. But she would go back to the second harem because now she's considered a concubine. And here in verse 14, it says this second harem, the second group, all right, was under the custody of Shahashgaz, okay, not under Hegei anymore. Now, I find this fascinating because in the movie, One Night with the King, the Hollywood version, Hegei was always the eunuch who controlled the entire harem, which is totally wrong. 
totally historically inaccurate. Now, the other thing is Esther didn't protest. She doesn't struggle. And this is clear. It's precise in the very words of God. Esther, not a whimper comes out of her mouth. Could it be that this is a big deal? A pagan girl in the city of Susa to be picked, to be part of this amazing lifestyle? This could be a very big deal. So in Esther, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it's Esther's turn. She goes into the king, and Xerxes is wowed. So that's the second aspect. The third aspect is we've got to go to the Talmud. And in the Talmud, which is Jewish commentary on the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that was completed uh, roughly, call it 500 A.D., and it has various sections to it, and there's one section called Megillah. We're able to read the rabbis' views, their ideas, their arguments back and forth, and they definitely had a lot of trouble with this book. So, for instance, they debated on her name. So in here, for instance, we won't read all the rabbinical comments, but there's one from Rabbi Mir, a very famous rabbi in rabbinic Judaism. And now the very words of God say that Esther forsook her Hebrew name. But Rabbi Mir says, no, 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 no. Her name, Hadassah, was not her name. Her real name was Esther. That was her real name. And it's not after a pagan god, Ishtar. This, this is Rabbi Mir talking about this, not Ishtar. Because, you see, the Hebrew there's a Hebrew word that means hidden. And Esther, that word, her name in Hebrew, is very similar sounding to the Hebrew word meaning hidden. And God is hidden behind the scenes. And this is why Esther is named Esther, and that's her real name. This is all made up. It's not in the Bible. Now the rabbis knew, and you can read this in the Talmud, that Esther had intercourse with Xerxes willingly. One view of one of the rabbis is that she was raped. Excuse me, that's not in the Bible. Another rabbi has a different view and he says, well, in sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, he said what really happened was Xerxes was the active partner and Esther was the passive partner because in her passivity, she realized there's nothing that she could do. If she resisted the king, she would be killed like Vashti, which is interesting because when you read the book of Esther, it doesn't say Vashti was killed. But this rabbi said, if Esther would actually resist the king, she would be killed just like Vashti. So this one rabbi is saying, in the Talmud, in Tractate Megillah, that since she was passive, and because she was passive, she, she couldn't resist the king. 
since she was passive, it's like rape, and there's no sin. This is made up by the rabbi. It's not even in the Bible. They're making things up to try to make Esther into Cinderella. They're trying to make things up to make Esther into Saint Esther. The rabbis knew the awful truth, the stark truth of what was happening, and they couldn't handle it. And then we come to Mordecai again. Now we remember that this book is totally secular. God is not mentioned at all. There's no Jewish rituals. Nothing in here to indicate anything about Judaism of that time. But Mordecai comes along. And it's as if he implies that Esther is part of a plan. Part of something that has been designed. And we would say, yeah, that's God. So Mordecai seems to imply that there's a plan of God going on here. No coincidence, no chance. And that reminds us of what we read in the book of Isaiah. And again, I'm going to read it again. Chapter 14, verse 24. Adonai Tsevaot, the Lord, the Master of Legions, has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have conceived, so so shall it come about, and as I've and as I have devised, so 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 shall it be established. This is by design. So, when we consider the Book of Esther, chapter four, verses ten through fourteen, we come to verse eleven, and Esther is communicating through one of the servants in the royal court to Mordecai. I'm going to be killed if I go into the king. I haven't seen the king for 30 days. And I can only go in if he calls me. If I go in there and he has not called me, I can be executed. That's where Mordecai comes in in verse 13 and he said, just want to let you know, the Jews are going to be saved one way or another. He says, you and your family won't escape the intervention of God himself. But then he says, who knows, Esther? Perhaps you've put in this position for such a time as this. I'd like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider, consider Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. They're all pagan women. They're married to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not Hebrew. They're pagan. And they're brought in and they became mothers of the covenant. And from them comes the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, in Isaiah 42, 6, in Isaiah 49, 6, Israel is to be a light to the world, a light to the nations, to bring the salvation of God to the ends of the earth. The salvation of God, Yeshua. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. A design by God. What God plans is going to happen. We remember Ruth, a Moabite. She's not a Hebrew. She was a practicing pagan. But she tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, 
that I will return with you, Mom, and your God will become my God. And then she marries Boaz. Boaz! Ruth becomes an ancestor of Jesus in the line of Messiah. Then we remember Rahab. She's a pagan. She's a prostitute in Jericho. She saved the two Hebrew spies who came into Jericho. She lied through her teeth to protect their lives. Later on, after she leaves with the Hebrews, she marries Salman. And Salman is the father of Boaz. And Boaz is the husband of Ruth. Rahab, a Canaanite, a pagan, a prostitute, a harlot, an ancestor of the Messiah. This is our God! Are we surprised? Are we surprised about Esther? We shouldn't be. Esther perhaps willingly turned from God and assimilated into the Persian culture. Or this was just something taught from the pre previous generation of Jews that had assimilated into the Persian culture. Now she may have willingly broke Torah, but may, could very well she didn't even know what the Torah was. She married a pagan king. But the interesting thing is in here, when we take a look at the pagan women of the Bible and God's design, it is clear Esther was placed there in the royal courts of Xerxes in the palace of Susa, placed there by God at the right time, at the right place, under the right circumstances. To do what? To save all Israel. So that in about 500 years after this, the Savior of the world would be born. Jesus. God is going to preserve this because through Israel, He is going to come. And the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles, the entire world, will be brought forth at the cross in Jerusalem. And Jesus, He's born to Mary. Remember Mary? She was pregnant out of wedlock. Jesus had no earthly father, the lowest of the low. Amazing. So knowing the historical background makes the story of Esther more than amazing. It is just so powerful. More powerful than anything I've ever heard in Messianic congregations, in the church, anywhere. We don't see the big picture. And we put it to his historical background, Esther willingly risked her life, her power. She's the queen of Persia. Her status, her position in the Persian royal court. She risks all of this to save her people. Remember, I talked about Cyrus. I talked about what God said about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, starting in verse 1. God calls him his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. Oh my gosh. But I believe there's some verses in Isaiah 45, and I'm going to start in verse 4 through 7, that relate to Esther. She's part of this. Cyrus is the first great emperor of the Persian Empire. And later on, Esther becomes a queen in the Persian Empire. And like her cousin said, perhaps put in this position for such a time as this. So it could very well be 
that we can take verses like this for her. Isaiah 45, starting in verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you, Esther, by your name. Now, it doesn't say Esther in there, but I'm just trying to say these could relate to Esther. I've given you a title of honor. Yeah, she's the queen of Persia. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there's no other besides me. There's no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising up to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. So for me, I now have a different view of the book of Esther. I will not be surprised to see Esther and Mordecai in the new Jerusalem as it's described in the book of Revelation. I won't be surprised to see Esther as part of the wedding party at the wedding feast of the Lamb. For she was put in that position for such a time as this. Shalom.